0: and welcome to The Pure Report. I'm your host, Rob Ludeman, and it is time to bring the orange with our special guest today, VP of Products at Cloud Apps, Madison Long. Massive, welcome to the program. It's great to have you on. I know we've been talking about this for, uh, for a month or two, and we finally lined you up. Uh, how's it going out there in the great white north of Canada?
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Rob, and it's going well up here. Uh, busy
0: times for you i, I want to get into you and who you are but uh, let's just jump right in when we first talked about cloud ops and cloud.ca uh, we were going to cover those things but you've had a you've had an m a activity go through uh, the cloud.ca moving over uh what what happened what happened with that
1: yeah so so let me start with the origin so back in i think it was around 2014 CloudOps actually incubated and launched our own Canadian cloud infrastructure as a service company called cloud.ca. And at this time, Amazon and Microsoft and Google had zero presence in the Canadian market. And so yeah. we were thinking, hey, there's a lot of different uh, sets of industry verticals that are going to move to the cloud in the future. And a lot of the highly regulated ones are going to want to have data sovereignty uh, in the countries that they reside in. So we really saw this opportunity there. and as we developed cloud.ca year after year, and, and then the pandemic happened, it really just started to kind of rocket ship <laughs> and yeah. as an organically scaled business. Uh, it's very CapEx intensive <laughs> to scale a cloud infrastructure business. I mean, you literally have to have the hyper scale <laughs> of an Amazon, Microsoft and Google to sustain such a fast growing business. And so we were really happy to find a Canadian uh company to actually acquire cloud.ca and, and really unlock the potential. They have, I know, significant uh growth plans uh for that business. Uh and so I'll just give a shout out to to Hypertech Group, the uh the company that uh, acquired this. And they also have a long history in the data center and uh, infrastructure operations space that I think is going to serve them and us very well.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting, and I love that you mentioned back in twenty fourteen the kind of the lack of presence of some of the, the hyperscalers, and and really that's why I was really thrilled to have you on so we could we could go into some of those dynamics, and we'll get to that. Let's talk about you a little bit. I, I love your diverse background, right? I kind of wonder how you know somebody that gets into the cloud services evolves into that, and I look at the time you've spent a little bit in in public sector and and building startups, and and also multiple roles, right? I mean, you've kind of dabbled in ops and in marketing and, and now really just probably more around strategy and, and, and product development or services offerings. But uh, when did you finally just get, get the idea that this, this was the place you wanted to be in and around cloud services and, and how did your, your prior roles kind of add up to that for you?
1: Yeah, so it did take me a while to to get here. I, I can't claim that I always knew exactly what I was going to do, but uh, looking back, I'm I'm super grateful for the breadth of experiences that I've got to have and, and continue to have to date. And I can remember, you know, when I was going off to university, which I which I self-funded myself. Uh, I remembered my just huge passion for for politics, for public policy, for finding ways to make lives better for for Canadians and this is really what brought me to the city of ottawa kind of the the capital of our country and also the head of where a lot of our political decisions are made and so at that time i was really looking to get involved in politics i didn't know a single person in the city of ottawa when i came here except for my local member of parliament <laughs> who was representing <laughs> the riding that i grew up in and so you know, when I got here, I called her and I, I, I said, hi, uh, I, I really need a job. <laughs> I, have no, I have no money, I don't know yeah. anybody here. <laughs> And, and I need to work. And so uh, she was generous enough to, to get me into Parliament and actually let me go door to door and start meeting members of Parliament and their staff. And I, I got to say, there, there was a lot of rejections, <laughs> but there was also a lot of good connections made. And and long story short, I actually ended up getting my first job in politics uh, through that exercise. Uh, I won't tell you how many doors I knocked on before I got a yes. But uh, I can certainly say I was very relieved <laughs> when one of the uh, members of Parliament and their staff were said, "Hey, actually, we do have a need, and and you would be a good fit to come in here and and really learn the experience and and from that and engaging in all these different jobs. That that job at Parliament, I worked at Aboriginal Affairs in the Climate Change Division. I, I worked in municipal politics uh, as well in the City of Ottawa, and all of this brought me together to learn that my passion for politics doesn't necessarily require me to work in politics to be paid." Right to work in politics and you know, seeing all the trade-offs that political staffers made, the long hours they work, uh, the very not great compensation they receive, the very toxic work culture, uh, I, I realized this, this wasn't the place for me. Uh, I, I thought I can continue to make the impact and, and really drive my passion outside of work. Uh, and this is really where I, I kind of was like, well, what do I do? And I was like, you know, I have all these skills I've learned. I know how to take a candidate like a product and position them to a market. And, and so you know, I picked up a lot of these different um, tangible skill sets uh, that end up being able to apply. And uh, I ended up working uh, my first tech job. Was at uh, Canada's Center of Excellence in Next Generation Networks. So it was a brand new nonprofit, federally funded, which brought together a whole bunch of you know n- uh, network vendors like Cisco and Juniper, uh, the telecoms, you know Rogers and Bell and such, uh, as well as a whole bunch of enterprise companies to try to create uh, a richer networking ecosystem both in Canada and and around the world. And, this was my first foray into politics i mean first foray into technology and uh and i I haven't stopped since (laughs) i guess i'll put it that
0: way it's a fun journey right and that's i was i was happy you wanted to share that and and you you mentioned some of the considerations you made and i it takes me back to, to my college university day. I studied political science, right? And there was always kind of the goal of, well, I'm gonna go do something in the public sector or go work at CIA. I don't, you know, my mom was always pushing me to kind of do that. And then, you know, you go look at the salary charts and then you talk to some people and realize the long hours that they're doing. And, uh, you know, technology just seemed a way, I mean, there's a lot of parallels between what we do in tech and how things have to operate in, in the public sector. Um, really interesting journey that, that you described there. We'll talk about what you do on a, on a day-to-day basis at CloudOps and, and what CloudOps is all about. Ultimately, that's why I wanted to bring you on is just get some exposure. I know there's some affinity for pure storage solutions and what that helps you drive. And, I'd, and I would love to touch on that at some point, but far more interested in that, but also digging into some of the trends, right? We're gonna title this from, from edge to the cloud. And we've been digging into a lot of things around edge and obviously have a have a nice cloud presence here at Pure. But uh, as a thought leader in that space, I'd love to get you on. But, but what is what is what does Cloud Opt do? Where, where do you go build services and what do you do on a daily day, day-to-day basis?
1: Yeah, sure. So, CloudOps does two things and sometimes both for the same customer. So, on one side of the business, which is more services, healthy, health, uh, services heavy, we help enterprise and software companies really consume cloud, get the most out of cloud, leverage different application platform technologies like CI/CD, automation, security tooling across various different cloud providers. And then the other side of the business, which I actually lead, is what we call our delivering cloud business. And this is where we work with telecoms and service providers who want to take these cloud platforms and actually offer them to their business customers in the regional markets that they operate within. And as you can imagine, these two things are very complementary because often we help the telecoms and service providers consume their own cloud and consume their own applications. And we often actually team up with them as partners and help them commercialize their cloud offerings and engage with their end users as well and help them go through the cloud journey uh to really get the most benefits out of that telecom or service providers offerings
0: the, the telcos are doing a lot more than what we think right so i'm, I'm often I, you know i was, I was recording a, a video for a conference with with our vp and gm of of portworks the other day and we were talking about a, a telco provider that that we had Supply works too in the Netherlands. And he started talking, he started rattling off all the different use cases and things they're doing. We think a telco is just, hey, you know, you're, you're delivering my voice services and I get the text, but they're they're harnessing tons of data, right? And so you start expanding into things around IoT and other different use cases. Can, can you elaborate a little bit on all the different things that are going on in a, in a telco provider? They've got data at the heart of their business, but you mentioned these applications and these business services. What types of use cases are emerging that maybe we're not aware or don't think about?
1: Yeah, so you're, you're totally right that a telco's business is their network, right? The traditional thing they offered was connectivity. And, and what we learned over time was that connectivity became commoditized and it became kind of a, a race to the bottom, if you will, where there wasn't a heavy lift for somebody to switch between one telecom provider and another one for connectivity. And when you think about the relationship they have with so many different enterprises and other businesses through their connectivity business, they already have these trusting and established relationships that they can build on with a bunch of assets that they already have to date. And so they own data centers, they own central offices, they own cell towers, they like to call it the beachfront property, uh, (laughs) as you'll you'll hear them often claim. Right, right. And and really it's a matter of helping them operationalize those assets, helping them tap into those business relationships, helping them identify the business needs uh, of those customers and helping them really pull together the skills, the technology, and all the things they need to actually actually fulfill those business needs of the customers that they're targeting.
0: So then why manage service providers, right? You know, you think about these companies and they tend to go it alone or they have their own big data center investments, but at some point, Scale becomes a challenge, or meeting the needs of so many different demanding third party or external customers comes in. But why are we seeing such a shift to MSPs now and the types of things
1: that that you know you can provide with with cloud ops? Yeah. in one word, uh, I would say right now, right this second, it would be talent. because there is a gigantic labor shortage and it is worldwide. Uh, Every company, unless you're as flashy as Amazon, Microsoft, and Google, and even if you are, it's still hard to be able to attract the talent, retain the talent, and build the talent within your organization. And so for a lot of these companies, uh, they want to move to cloud native architectures. They want to evolve the way that they're deploying, operating, and managing their applications and evolving their business. But they don't necessarily have the skill sets they need to be able to do it. And so a lot of what we're trying to do is helping these service providers build up that talent, attract that talent, and offer the capabilities that end customers need to be able to manage these different evolving cloud and and edge architectures uh, that we're seeing unfolding in the market. And so definitely that skill set shortage is the number one reason right now, but there are plenty of other reasons uh, that contribute to why you'd want to leverage a managed service provider.
0: that's an interesting one. I mean, I had the privilege to host some CIO summits over the last couple of years, you know, just show up and moderate and bring up a topic. And it was all in around migration to cloud or adoption of of cloud native technologies. But to your point, there was one common thread that, that kept coming back. Right. Which was the staff I have, particularly for a traditional IT shop is not necessarily skilled, but also I'm in a market like Phoenix or I'm in a market like Vancouver or wherever, and there's just a finite pool of talent and staffing there. And yes, you can go and train that staff up and and spend that time and invest that capital, but it's going to take a while. And why not go and and outsource or, you know, leverage the, the talent that's there with a service provider. That's super, super interesting um, that that you honed in on that. Because you could have gone with a lot of the classic things, right? You know, performance and response time and availability and, and all those good things that that SPs are trying to provide. And there's always goodness with that, right? I mean, those are things with Pure that we're always trying to flesh out and and help with service providers. But really interesting to to hone in on on the talent deficit, uh, I guess, that is there. What then? uh, Let's talk a little as a service, right? If we're talking about S.P.s. What does that mean to you? And we do things as a service here at Pure, and, and frequently when people talk cloud, I jokingly say, well, it's really not cloud. You're looking for the experience of cloud. You're looking yeah. at the outcome, but you're looking at consumption models or utility-based types of things. Is that what it, what it means to you, or is there something more, right? When you look strategically at, at a service, what what comes to mind for you when you're talking to someone?
1: Yeah, and I think you're beginning to tap into it, right? Cloud is a is a business model. It's it's a way of actually engaging and offering usage-based services as a service to your customers. And and the typical way I, I like to talk about this subject, and I, I don't mean to poke fun at these companies, so uh, uh, please forgive me if anybody at these companies is <laughs> listening to this podcast. But if you open up any of the Canadian telecoms websites and go to their cloud services right now, any of them, Bell, Rogers, Telus, whichever one, you're gonna see this call to action that says, call me for cloud. And I can promise you in uh, 2021 going into 2022, after using Amazon, Google, Microsoft and seeing all the other options in the market, not a single developer is going to pick up their phone and call me for cloud and it's funny because on the web page it says hey we'll call you back in two business days i don't think that developer is going to wait 48 hours to receive a call back from this telecom sales rep to talk about their cloud infrastructure needs they have a business need they want to get into the cloud platform they want to use it they want to validate that it solves their business need and they want to get going and so for me as a service is removing all the barriers to uh, allowing these developers and allowing their companies to accomplish their business objectives without ever having to pick up the phone. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And it it dovetails with a lot of the things we're investing
0: in with our own digital experience product team, which is mainly in and around Pier One, where we finally had the realization we need to make it available for people to transact and to research and test and discover and deploy directly from that mission control type of experience it, it nobody's going to pick up a phone nobody's going to send an email heaven forbid somebody wants to fill out a form and wait for somebody to call them back it just needs to be digital it needs to be online and it needs to be now and and available uh to to people and that and that really is also the you know the nature of where things have been heading with cloud native in general over the past four or five years and a number of the tools that, that have enabled that kubernetes and the such but how much did 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 you see, and since you're deep into this, how much has the pandemic, and I guess it wouldn't be a podcast if I didn't bring up something pandemic related, (laughs) but uh, there is this whole notion of the acceleration of of digital initiatives. I think a lot of those things were happening before, and I think there was going to be acceleration anyway, but to what extent have you then seen that change and, and that acceleration actually manifest
1: itself? Yeah, I think the pandemic, and I think you tapped into this, there were trends that were already occurring, and it definitely accelerated the rate of those trends. And I would say it created a lot more disruption than maybe we even expected it in so many different ways, it created uh, a disruption in the talent market. Suddenly, you're not centralizing people all into buildings where you have infrastructure and different services. They're suddenly distributed out, and suddenly, you know, the border between Canada and U.S. Well, it's actually not as important because you know, of common language and culture and all of this. So suddenly, you know, American companies are offering all of their jobs to Canadians, and and there's suddenly this even more competition around talent. But there's also, as you say, an increase in the amount of consumption of cloud infrastructure, the need to move to cloud. We've seen organizations that simply would never have moved to cloud without being Forced to do it and one of those was actually uh, the Canadian military I've got friends who work in the Canadian military in their IT department and they were uh, vehemently opposed to running anything outside of their own premise in a God. secure data center that is as, as no way for any security vulnerabilities and suddenly you know they're deploying on Microsoft Azure they're moving to the cloud they're they're making these changes that we never thought they were going to uh, as an organization and, and so I think that you're right that there were all these trends coming and the pandemic has really accelerated them and created uh, a, a truly disruptive environment, uh, which is both a, a high risk for many organizations, but also a high opportunity uh, if you know how to adapt and evolve to the disruptive market conditions.
0: Yeah, and I would say another one of the disruptive forces that is very closely related would be edge, right? Yep. And I know that's an area that you focus on. I think it's a really interesting one because there's more to it than also, I think people realize, right? Is, you know, the notion that there's just data being created out at these random environments. And I I love, I I wrote a, you know, to your point about clickbaity kind of blogs. I I did a top six trends in in Edge recently, (laughs) but you start listing all the different use cases and it's fascinating, right? And I I have a Canadian on my team and, and we brainstormed about it and she started bringing up these, these use cases that I hadn't even thought of. She said, "You know, there's farms here <laughs> in Canada <laughs> yeah. where they're they're generating, you know, they're generating data and they're tracking the things out in the out in the fields. And how do you take that data? And you can't just go push. There's no data center, you know, sitting in the middle of Alberta somewhere. Uh, you have to find ways to process that data and and keep what's important and move it out. There's obviously everything with with supply chain and all the issues that are going on with supply chain now is a whole separate issue." But but all that is based on IOT data. And so what, what edge challenges, and it, maybe it's germane to, to what we were talking about earlier with Telco, cause they, they're gonna get a lot of that with, with the 5G revolution. What, what are you seeing relative to edge being as well a disruptive factor?
1: Yeah, so before I do, I, I got to fulfill a stereotype in telling you that uh, our VP of operations at CloudOps also owns a maple syrup farm, <laughs> 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 and he has implemented sensors on all of the maple syrup trees to know oh, exactly uh, when to tap them for SAP. And therefore, crazy. I have fulfilled the stereotype of Canada <laughs> insofar as both talking about an edge computing use case and uh, and fulfilling the stereotype that we love maple syrup. Which do I is- tell
0: people that you're wearing a Canadian Mountie outfit while you're with this too. Yeah. That would be a whole nother stereotype that we have here in the US.
1: Yeah, I, I, I might as well be at this point, but you know, uh, what I see in terms of edge computing is that it's really an extension of cloud computing that's solving market gaps that I feel like the pandemic has somewhat exposed. And and I'll give a really good example of an existing client and a use case where they were using centralized cloud and then actually had to move to the edge because it was business imperative that they did. so. We were working with this international gaming company who has all these different gaming studios around the world but in this specific case around montreal and, and quebec and suddenly, with the pandemic, all of their game developers and game testers couldn't come into the physical space that they had to use the high-powered tablets and connectivity and everything that they set up in these facilities. And so suddenly, uh, and if you know artists, uh, they really didn't want to work where the conditions weren't prime. <laughs> they weren't exactly what they wanted. And so uh, they ended up approaching us because they were having to use this um a virtual desktop interface from a very uh, well-known vendor and it was hosted on a hyperscale cloud provider in the US and they were experiencing like over 100 milliseconds to 150 milliseconds of latency. And when you're actually developing a game or testing a game, that is completely unacceptable. It's it's too much of a degradation of experience and it actually impacts your ability to do a job. So it was creating a delay to a brand new game they were trying to launch. And if you're a gamer, you're well aware that the pandemic has caused all different delays due to collaboration. And this is an example of that, but actually uh, we helped them come up with a solution. So we took the control control plane of the virtual desktop interface and actually brought it way closer to the users. So we ended up moving it off of a hyperscale cloud provider and moving it on to a regional canadian cloud to actually help them get down to between 50 to 15 to 30 milliseconds of latency so that their testers and developers could get back to doing what they do best you know make very bug free gaming environments for for gamers like myself so it's just a really concrete example of like the challenges the pandemic has caused but also the challenges that aren't being solved by cloud computing today Uh, in the way that they need to that are tied to the business's objectives
0: yeah i think hyperscale is good for a lot of things but when you start going into some of these niche use cases or sort of these one-off things where geography is a challenge or response time is a challenge right and i'm not going to make that blanket statement that cloud services and hyperscalers can't provide those but it does create the need for the next cloud 100, right, or the cloud 1000, which, which we used to call that here at Pure, to, to go off and, and handle some of these exceptional types of, of use cases. Where, where do you see companies on their cloud native journey? Where are we on that spectrum, right? If, 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 if zero is not yet started or, or thinking about it, and 100 is fully invested and complete CICD, pipeline development, all smooth that's 100, where would you say the average company lies?
1: The average company, it's very early. Uh, I think we're still in the very early stages of this industry. I mean, there's a lot of organizations who are just now planning to make the move from on-premise data centers to the cloud. Uh, let alone thinking about, you know, evolving that architecture. Most of their objectives are, no, I just want to get to the cloud and sustain. I wanna, I wanna set it. I wanna forget it. I want it to work. <laughs> and and there are other organizations. There's certain leading enterprises. Certainly, a lot of software companies. Uh, b2b independent software vendors uh, especially who are building uh, or have developed uh, cloud-native applications and are moving to deploy you know, wherever their customers need or wherever their organization needs. And I think they're further along on their journey, but not without challenges. And I think if, you, if I took that scale that you had with the perfect CI, CD and everything in place, yeah. I, I doubt many organizations are at 10. <laughs> I think the best organizations would probably put themselves between a seven and an eight. <laughs> and then the average organization, since we're in the early uh, part of this, would probably be between a three and a five, just given how many have not even started the journey to cloud native, let alone the journey to cloud.
0: Yeah, and haven't experienced the, the the stumbling blocks and some of the bumps in the road that that come along with that. Um, similar and related question, because one of the things we talked about when we pre-briefed was the emergence of object storage. And it's interesting because, uh, you know, our VP of, of uh, accounts or, or VP of strategy that is actually another Canadian guy, Vancouver guy named Sean Rosemarin. Uh, we, we had some chats recently about uh, artificial intelligence and, and analytics and log analytics. And I, you know, I'm going to use a baseball analogy, which loses some of the international audience. But just just know this 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 term that Sean uses means it's very early. He says we're in the second inning. Yeah. Of, of artificial intelligence and, and analytics and machine learning. Um, but it's related really closely to, to object store. From your view at CloudOps, what do you see as the opportunity for, for object and, and object storage, and what is that driving? And I think maybe it comes back a little bit to the edge too. We kind of go full circle.
1: Yeah, definitely. I do think it comes back to the edge. Uh, I also think there's a value prop that stands alone for for object storage, even in a regional cloud or a hyperscale cloud scenario. I mean, there are all sorts of needs people can have around object storage. There's the high performance uh, AI and machine learning uh, use case you talked about, for which I, I can talk about uh, a customer we have that's engaging in that. But then there's also just the classic like snapshotting of VMs. And I was chatting with the uh, the CTO for security at Pure yesterday. uh, And we were talking about, you know, how do we create zero trust security principles for object storage, uh, especially because object storage is also one of the most targeted, like S3 object storage is one of the most targeted uh, cybersecurity areas uh, across many industries. And so it was a really interesting discussion. And when we look at edge, when people are trying to do processing with lower latency and higher performance at the edge, you suddenly can't go back to a centralized cloud to get your object that's within your object storage for like historical queries and things like this. You're gonna have enormous egress costs that's gonna undermine the whole reason you went to the edge to right. get the latency and performance improvements. So I do think there's a link with edge. I think there's a link with cloud. And I think there are a lot of ways this, uh, this industry and the offerings are evolving. And, and we're really excited with, uh, with what we've learned uh, from pure storage.
0: Yeah, it's it's great opportunity. And I'm really pleased that we're working together on, on some of those services. You mentioned the the customer. I think that's an interesting one when we pre-brief just to go into because it is germane to what's going on around the planet. But I think it was a it's a climate research uh, type of company. What what have you architected for them? What type of
1: services have you worked with them to go off and build? Yeah, so, so they're a leading climate change research institution that's based in Boston, so they're an American company. Uh, and what they do is every single year, they take an enormous amount of satellite image data and climate change simulation data and they aggregate it across the world to be able to then use a hyperscale cloud provider to do process machine learning and AI applications to actually come up with conclusions. You know, what's the rate of deforestation? What's the rate of the Arctic ice melting? What's the impact on different uh, climates around the world? And this is the sort of analysis they're doing. And as you can imagine, that satellite image data gets richer and richer every year, yeah. and so the amount of storage space it takes up is, is enormous. And so for this uh, climate change research institution, they were trying to figure out, you know, what's the best way to optimize my costs while you know, still having my data processing pipeline uh, get me the outcomes that I need. And so we kind of created a, a bit of a unique solution where they ended up storing their data within our Canadian cloud, which was using peer storage. Uh, and we created them a private network connection to a hyperscale cloud provider, which was uh, Google Cloud. And that's where they actually processed the AI and machine learning uh, different workloads they had. But then when they were done getting those conclusions analysis, they just deleted their data and left it in the uh, Canadian cloud provider to try to get the best cost advantages, uh, but also achieve their business objectives. And so I think we're gonna see a lot more of this kind of edged cloud experience where you're trying to balance the cost, the performance, Performance, the latency with your business objectives.
0: Yeah, and there's still a role for for on-premises, right? So, I mean, the, d- the demise of on-prem that we we're reading about 10 years ago, I feel like every article <laughs> that I was reading in a magazine on all the flights I was doing for work at that time was like, cloud's gonna eat everything. And, and what we're finding in reality is there's trade-offs. There's yep. there's needs to have these, and they're not even two locations anymore. There, it's really just to go back to as a service, But there's needs to have things on prem to have things in the cloud, like you just mentioned, you know, where where it's just going to live there. And now so more at the edge. Right. There's a rise of edge devices where actually some of the storage is being localized uh, there because it just can be accessed much more quickly without, you know, without the latency that's needed. Really interesting. Uh, But thanks for for sharing that example. We'll do it now because you've alluded to it a couple of times, how and where does Pure provide value for your offerings, right? You've got flash array and you can do some block offerings there. You just mentioned, you know, Object, which obviously is, is a FlashBlade type of thing. And then there's Pure as a service and Pure1. But what, what does Pure do for your ecosystem and enable you to kind of make these services more transparent without any, without any challenges on the back end?
1: Yeah. So, you know, having worked as a a cloud operator and as a cloud services company, we've got a lot of exposure to different storage companies. We've worked with, you know, NetApp SolidFire in the past and Daytera and all these different storage companies, but none of them quite met the performance needs we were looking for, as well as the value for the price. And I think that's where Pure is just in the sweet spot. And especially when we look at the telecom and service provider delivering cloud business, I think the pure as a service model is the perfect balance of flexibility and scalability that the service providers and telecoms need, right? Because they're launching brand new edge to cloud business units, brand new offerings, and really they're taking on quite a lot of risk in, in buying servers and setting up this business and hiring the salespeople and the operations and everything. And the pure as a service model makes it so... They don't have to buy all of the storage <laughs> up front, take yeah. on all the risk, figure out how to install this thing, figure out how to get it to work within that existing infrastructure environment. Like Pure takes a lot of that, what I just described as undifferentiated heavy lifting and allows them to get to market quickly with unique storage offerings that can help differentiate them in the market and help fill gaps where the hyperscale cloud providers are not currently fulfilling in the market.
0: Yeah, you've honed in really really hard on the theme that, that Paul Veraro, Ferraro, our, our VP of, of Peer as a Service, he always comes back to because there, there'll be debates about CapEx versus OpEx and the financial models and, and all this. And he, he will eventually tune or correct whoever's talking about that and say that's not what it's about, right? It's a factor. It's a component. It's a consideration in the decision to do an as-a-service type of model. It is all about the risk. Right, it is it is all about not not having to go do a big giant capex purchase and then find out you overconsumed or, or underbought and and then you're stuck. It is getting what you need when you need it, and it, it almost goes full circle to, to our conversation before where you know give us a phone call if you want to try our cloud services. No, no, you, you want to just to have the services. You want to flip it on like a like a light switch and and know that it's there and it can scale up and down as you need it. So um, that is great that you hit on the the risk factor and how quickly. Uh, those those services need to get to market. Uh, where are you excited relative to new markets? Right, You've, we've talked a lot about telcos and some of the edge different use cases. Where are you looking to go next? Where where are the challenges with data and what you can help service providers do? Going to open up and unlock new opportunities that get you excited.
1: Yeah, so there's a lot of different markets that I think are are super interesting. I mean, CloudOps as a whole is really focused on, on B2B independent software vendors, because what we like is that their customers determine where they need to deploy. So when we engage with them, they're always deploying their software in so many different locations. And because of that, they need the portability of cloud native. They need the CI CD process. They need all of these different things. But I think another sector that we really find interesting, and, and I know some of our service provider partners do, is the media and entertainment vertical. And and typically, this vertical is actually probably one of the most challenging verticals to work with. They have very complex needs. They have a a high security need. I mean, if you're dealing with uh, movies and TV shows, like uh, Hollywood has its own certifications that you need to be able to handle this type of data. And they have physical security people they send. Disney actually gives physical security people to go on the premise of the data center and make sure it's physically secure to their specifications. So it's a hard vertical to work with, but if you can meet the needs of this super hard vertical, then you're gonna be able to meet the needs of a broad array of verticals. And so we really like working with them. Uh, We are working with uh, a ton of media and entertainment companies today trying to meet their needs. we are even using Pure Storage in some of those engagements we're helping to uh, validate uh, the use of Autodesk Flame on top of Pure Storage, and so that's a certification Pure didn't have yet, but we're we're bringing to the mix as part of this engagement, and I think it's a, those are really interesting sectors that, that we're looking and, and watching the evolution of.
0: Yeah, super fun. Great to have new opportunities out there, and as we look at opportunities. You're a thought leader out there. You participate in an invite-only Forbes Technology Council, have a membership there. And I noticed it was was kind of an exclusive uh, set of folks, but you also are required to kind of think in the future and look out there so as we head into 2022 and beyond what are some predictions that you can make where you'll see technology trends going you don't have to give me top 10 right you know click dating, <laughs> top 10 type of thing but what are what are one two or three things that anybody listening to this might be interested in in you know diving into a little bit more based on the conversations that you have with all the sps and the, and the end
1: user customers Yeah, so i got to say first that whenever I make predictions, uh, I end up regretting them. (laughs) (laughs) We won't hold you to it. We won't hold you to it. (laughs) I'm hoping these predictions will be exactly what I expect to happen. So the first one is that I think the edge computing market is going to continue to evolve quickly. And I think we're going to see a ton of different service providers in telecoms uh, start to be public. Uh, about the different uh, edge to cloud partners, platforms, and pilots that they're engaging with today. They, they see the market opportunity, they have the assets, uh, they just really need to get going, get in the market, and, and really engage with their customers to make sure that everything they're doing is driven by their customer needs. So my first prediction is, edge is here to stay it's an extension of the cloud computing market it isn't going to replace cloud computing that's ridiculous but it will add value to the broader ecosystem And it also brings me to my prediction number two, which is that the hyperscale cloud providers, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google, are not going to wait on this market opportunity. They're not going to wait till there's a perfect use case that's defined. They're not going to wait when they know there's market opportunity. They are going to launch edge offerings into the new year. We're seeing For example, Amazon combined their hybrid cloud and edge cloud departments into one to focus on edge computing offerings. And so we know they're gonna ramp up. We know they're gonna address this market. And we're also hoping that creates the urgency for my first prediction to be true, and that the service providers and telecoms will see the steamroller coming at them, the terminator running at them, and they'll <laughs> realize that they need to get to market quickly. They need to get to market effectively. They need to be focused on their customer needs relentlessly. And I think if they do, they're going to have good success at the edge. Yeah, those are those
0: are awesome, and. Um... I think there's a lot to come with the edge as well. I think we just really scratched the surface of of what's going on there, but yeah, you are seeing that with the hyperscalers. I mean, somewhat related, we just announced here at Pure a week or so ago, uh, a new EDA offering, you know, in Azure, right? So, you know, using FlashBlade and connected to Equinix and, you know, is that an edge use case? Kind of, right? I mean, you know, it it kind of fits in there, but it is an example of those things merging and coalescing uh, together. Well, thanks, uh, thanks for letting me put you on the spot there and uh i i th- I think you're, you're going to nail those, but we're not going to hold you to them if uh, if they don't entirely take off. But I, I bet they will. I bet you're going to be right. You're seeing all of this. Um, well, hey, I appreciate the time. I got to let you go because uh, it's already been uh, more than the allotted time, but I had such a great time chatting with you and getting all your insights. You're just chock full uh, of information. And I love that. And I hope you, the listener out there, have enjoyed it as well. But before we go, talk about how to engage with cloud ops and how to find you on places like LinkedIn or anything that you want to plug, website, blog, uh, how to get to CloudOps. If if anybody out there wants to have a conversation to go design a solution, uh, where do people go?
1: Yeah, so first of all, thank you for having me and hosting me on this podcast. You're a great host, and uh, it's my pleasure to chat with you. And secondly, yeah, you can reach us at cloudops.com. If you want to learn about our software business, you're a service provider or a telecom, CloudMC cloudops.com is how you get there. And if you just want to reach out to me for a chat, feel free to hit me up on LinkedIn. My name is Madison Long, and uh, it should be easy to find me. I'm I'm probably the only male Madison with this name on LinkedIn. So it'll be easy to know. (laughs) But but two D's, right? Two D's. Yes, there's two D's. That's the difference between the female version of the (laughs) name and the the male version.
0: (laughs) That's what it stands out. But yes, that makes it really easy when you search for him with two D's in the, uh, in the Madison. And I know you are accessible and love having chats with folks. I had a blast today. Thanks again for the time. I do appreciate it. And thank you out there for listening to this episode of the pure report keep sending in your feedback with suggestions for topics and we will keep having the great guests like madison long on he was awesome uh he is awesome and uh i don't know i might, might ask you to come back again in the future we'll it see it would be the, my pleasure see how those predictions played out you know in about a year from now but anyway thanks for listening to this episode of the pure report i'm going to go ahead and wrap for pure storage and madison long this is rob ludeman saying don't look back something might be gaining on you